on the screen. Imagine that on the screen is a photograph of a four-year-old boy named Luke. His mother posted the testimonial on the website of the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. She tells the story of how Luke was born five pounds, seven ounces, and immediately was transferred to the NICU unit because he had breathing problems, and ever since his birth, he was struggling with complications that seemed to crop up over and over again. And at the age of three, he was diagnosed with a condition that doctors call a failure to thrive. Now, Johns Hopkins Medical School defines failure to thrive as a decelerated or arrested physical growth. In other words, not gaining weight, not getting taller. The issue was that Luke was refusing to eat. On February of 2012, Luke was hospitalized with dehydration and diagnosed as hypoglycemic and had to have a feeding tube inserted. And as you can imagine, his mother, devastated. She had a full-time job teaching. She quit her job to put all of her energies into Luke's recovery. Luke was admitted to the Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Center and received therapy and treatment. And the story ends well. The interventions were a success. And praise God today, Luke is not only surviving, but he's thriving. And here's a direct quote from Luke's mother. We are so happy to watch our growing, thriving little boy running and playing just like any other four-year-old. And today we are continuing in our second installment of our three-part series of messages that we've entitled Blessed Assurance. And last week we talked about justification, that is being born or being born again. Today we want to talk about sanctification, and that is talking about thriving after you are born again. Being born is one thing. Thriving after you're born is another thing. Both are essential. Now, what is sanctification? This is a question that people have asked in regards to these words that we throw around. And last week we talked about justification. And by the way, if you did not hear last week's message, it's on our website, www.omalleysda.org. Or I have a friend that's a web guru, and he's actually given me my own URL, pastorshin.com. I guess there's not another Pastor Shin out there, all right? So you, you can get the sermons there as well. Anyways, this is a comparison between justification and sanctification. I want to read through it very quickly here. Justification, birth, becoming alive. Sanctification, growth, thriving while you're alive. Justification is covering Sanctification is cleansing. Justification is declaration. Remember we talked about that last week? He covers you with his robe and declares you righteous. It's an alien righteousness totally outside of yourself. He covers you and declares you righteous. Sanctification is transformation. Justification is what God thinks of us. 
He looks at us. He doesn't see our fallenness. He sees the righteousness of Christ, the robe that covers us. Sanctification is what we think of God. Justification is Christ's imputed righteousness. Sanctification is Christ's imparted righteousness. Justification is what God does for you. Sanctification is what God does in you. Sanctification is like, or I should say, justification is like getting married. Sanctification is like staying married. Justification is pardon. Sanctification is power. Now, some people have asked this question, and it is debated ad infinitum in the Christian community. It's justification, or is it sanctification? And there are these theological soil battles that go back and forth over and over again with different emphases. Now, this is not to say that we should not emphasize one, but we should never emphasize one to the negation of the other. Because which is more important, to be born or to thrive after you're born? Both. Both. But you need to be born first. All right? And sometimes we get a little bit confused because individuals may emphasize sanctification and they curiously leave out justification. It's like putting all of these high callings upon someone that hasn't even been born. So we need to have both. But justification precedes sanctification. We need that assurance that it's His robe that covers us. And as long as we're in this relationship, He continues to work in and through us. Now, my brother up there, can you turn on that monitor real quick so I can see these slides? All right, thank you. Now, one of the ways that we can look at this is, as we discussed last year, uh, we talked about Johannes Kepler back in 1605, was looking at planetary motion. He was looking at Mars motion or orbit around the sun, and he came to the conclusion that it was not in the Copernican model. The Copernican model assumed that the orbit was an exact circle, but he observed that it was something else. It was actually an ellipse. The difference between an ellipse and a circle is that a circle centers on one central point, an ellipse centers on two. So you can see it here. Maybe you can see it here. Oh, boy. All right, imagine that you're seeing it there. That there is a circle that has two central points in it. All right, so you can actually do this at home. You can have a circle with two central points. Now, when we look at justification and sanctification, pardon and power, we need to look at it in terms of not one central point, but two, because both are essential. You need both pardon, justification, and power, sanctification. When you center your theology on one to the exclusion of the other, that is when we start going down a road that becomes imbalanced. You need to hold these two in a wonderful tension. And you see this tension all throughout Scripture. 1 John 1, 9, we quote this all the time. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that's justification, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's sanctification. Do you see that? All right? To forgive us 
and to cleanse. You can see this elliptical pre- uh, principle coming through Scripture. These two are upheld for the Christian experience. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. There you have sanctification, power. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power or in the spirit of our Lord. That is sanctification. All right? So you have this element of justification and sanctification. You look at the words of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 11. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. What is that? That is justification, pardon. And then he says, go and sin no more. Now, that was not so much a command as it was a promise. The power was within the promise. Now, if Jesus just said to the woman, go and sin no more, that would have been overwhelming. But he says to her, Look, I don't condemn you. Pardon. Go and sin no more. That wonderful tension between these two realities. Pardon and power. Justification, sanctification. Covering and cleansing. These two go hand in hand, and there is a wonderful tension in the gospel between these two realities. Steps of Christ, page 63. Our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ, notice it says here, imputed to us, and in that wrought by His Spirit, working in and through us. What is she talking about? The righteousness of Christ imputed to us? Justification. And in that wrought by His Spirit, working in and through us. So we need both of these realities that are packaged together in the gospel. Justification, sanctification. Now, what does sanctification look like? Now, I have a dissertation in my library that I do not understand. And I've attempted to read, but I have gotten the essential thesis of this dissertation. It's by Fernando Canali, Professor Emeritus of Theology and Philosophy at Andrews Theological Seminary. And his thesis is essentially that when you look at the history of classical and modern Christian theology, that all of it can be attributed as a footnote to Plato. Think about that. All of modern and classical theology is a footnote to Plato, and he goes all the way back to Augustine and how Augustine, when he was doing theology, rather than going to the Bible to come to an understanding of the world and human nature, he went to Greek philosophy and said, look, Plato's doing a great job. Let me just import this in. And so dualistic, platonic ideas came into our understanding of human nature and the world. Now, when we look at platonic dualism, don't worry, this isn't a class on philosophy, Do you remember philosophy 101? Platonic forms? This idea that there exists this static perfection in the timeless reality. There is a perfect triangle, according to Plato, in that timeless reality. Now, when you look at our understanding of perfection, I think that sometimes we get an aneurysm when we hear the word perfection is because we are thinking like a Greek person and not like a Hebrew person. 
What the Bible means by perfection is not absolute perfection. Are you hearing me? When the Bible talks about perfection and sanctification, it is not absolute perfection. It is what we would call relative perfection. Furthermore, this perfection that God gives us because of His righteousness is something that we will never be aware of. We're not going to stand up one day and say, look, I've arrived. Static perfection, I mean, that's blasphemous. It is a relative perfection. We're not talking about a static state that you arrive in. When you look at the Bible, at the Christian experience, it is not static. It is dynamic. What do we mean by dynamic? We mean that it is moving in a historical reality. It is progressing. That is what we mean when we say and talk about sanctification and this notion of perfection. It is not static perfection. It is relative perfection in your walk with Jesus Christ. Now, look at this. This is the notion of progression. Look at the path of the righteous. It's found in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter till the full light of day. This is not platonic, static perfection, friends. I've never seen the sun just pop up. All right? It is a progression. Maybe not in Barrow. <laughs> but anyways, you get the point. So it is a progression that moves and, and progresses. So there is a dynamic element to our Christian experience. And this is an imperfect uh, just model that I've tried to illustrate what the Christian experience looks like. All right, so here you have birth. Notice that birth, justification, is a point. All right, when you are justified, it is instantaneous. Your robe or his robe covers you. You are justified, and you stand before God as though you had never sinned. As long as you are in that justification relationship with God, there is a transformation that starts in your life. All right, And there is a progression in the Christian experience that God works in and through you. Now, this is the thing. It's not about how far you get. It's about remaining in the process. If we ascribe to this notion that it's about how far you get, the thief on the cross is not getting in, friends. The thief on the cross was justified. Now, I'm not sure how long he was hanging upon the cross, but I would assume a few hours. But in that process, you know, sanctification was working on his heart, but he did not get far at all. The point is, accept Jesus, and as long as you're in that frame with Jesus, you are going through the process with him. It's not about how far you get, it's being in the process. Now, look at this notion of relative perfection and the dynamic element to it. Christ Object Lessons, page 65. At every stage of development, our life may be what? Perfect. That's not a static platonic perfection, friends. That is a relative perfection. In other words, you can be perfect at every stage. You can be perfect at the beginning of your Christian experience. You can be perfect, perfect the next moment. It has to do with your frame and your relationship with God. 
Yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be continual advancement. Sanctification is the work of a what? Of a lifetime. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Now, we need to be careful when we talk about sanctification because there have been individuals that have an an unusual self-awareness about how sanctified they are. I have had a prominent writer that stated, I have not sinned in three years. Now, that is a challenging element of self-awareness. I I wish I can engage in a conversation and just kind of flesh out what they are meaning. But look at this. This is from the Bible Echo. The closer you come to Christ, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes, for your vision will be clearer and your imperfection will be seen in distinct contrast with his perfect character. Be not discouraged. This is an evidence that Satan's delusions are losing their power. Now, this is the paradox, is that the more you are walking in your relationship with Jesus, the more you are self-aware of how fallen we are. Now, this is not indicating that we're to focus on our frailty, but there is kind of this element when we're looking at Jesus that there is an awareness of our need for Him. Look, as long as we're walking with Jesus, we can never and should never come to the place and say, you know what? I'm pretty good. And you look at the person next to you and you say, oh man, someday they'll be on the level of sanctification that I am. Wow. The irony is you're actually farther from Jesus, not closer. So this is the paradox that we need to keep in mind. And the thing is, the ground of this humility is in justification. Because in justification, God covers you with His robe. It has nothing to do with who you are. It is His covering, His act. And in that moment, you are saved. (laughs) You're not saved in how far you get in sanctification. You're saved in the moment of justification. And that's our security. That as long as you're in that walk with Him, He starts working in your life through sanctification. Now, this is the tension that is in Scripture. Look, I am nowhere near where I need to be in my Christian experience. But look, I look back on my life and I praise God that there has been growth in my Christian experience. Not that I'm getting higher or better, but I'm a lot more happier now, I tell you, and a lot more easier to live with, praise God. Because He's been working on my heart to reflect the love of Jesus. It's a continuum. It's a journey. It's dynamic. It's not static. And the beauty of the gospel is you can die today, not having attained, but in the process, and be just as saved 
Amen. Amen? I mean, do you believe that? I, we should be preaching this. I mean, it's a shame. I, I was working on this sermon, and I told my wife, I said, look, I wish someone had preached this sermon to me when I was in my Christian experience. It, it would have really helped me along. Because we have this notion of like instant sanctification. You go down into the water like we did today with baptism, you come out the other side, you're sanctified. I mean, that is just not true. Not true. You're saved, you're justified, but you're not sanctified. We don't believe in instantaneous sanctification, friends. I mean, that is platonic. That's not biblical. Now, I want to hone in on this notion of the this element of the Christian experience that we have not talked about enough. I want to reflect back on the experience of Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. She was brought in before Jesus. You remember the story? Pharisees. Through a series of events, it's just Jesus and the woman. And remember what Jesus said to the woman? Neither do I condemn you. Pardon Go and sin no more. I believe that as Jesus was speaking these words, the pathos, the emotion, the love was undeniable. Undeniable. Now, Mary, after this interaction with Jesus, the Bible implies that she still struggled. There was a lot of old habits and lifestyle that she still struggled with. You have this allusion in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Now, the Bible is not clear in this case as to whether he cast out seven demons all at once or whether he did it seven different times. But the desire of ages is insightful and actually points out what this indicates. Desire of ages 5, 68, seven times. In other words, this was not one time. This was seven different times. She had heard his rebuke of the demons that controlled her heart and mind. Now think about this. Jesus has just said to this woman, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But seven times after that, Jesus goes to this same woman, casts out a demon or demons, goes the next time, casts out a demon, goes the next time, casts out a demon. And, and notice Jesus is not like two strikes and you're out. This is grace. Jesus holds up the ideal, go and sin no more. But as this poor woman with all of these habits and tendencies, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. She yearns to do it, not, and she can't do it, not because God is not able, but because she's weak, and so she's struggling. And look, this is grace. This is grace that God, seven times, comes back and casts out the demon. 
Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, for a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Now, this is a curious passage because it says a righteous man. I thought righteous people did not fall. What this implies is justification, covering. You're declared righteous. But as you go out to walk in the Christian experience, as you're learning how to walk, you're going to stumble. Not because God's power is not able, but because of our fallen humanity. We are still learning how to walk. We're still learning how to depend on Him. And there is this wonderful tension in Scripture. Jude 24, now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling. Praise God for that. But 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we need to recognize that between the ideal and our fallenness, there is a whole lot of grace. A whole lot of grace. The grace of God covers you as we are struggling to learn how to walk. I'm not saying that victory is not there. I'm not saying that the power is not there. I'm saying that in the continuum of the Christian experience, there is a whole lot of grace for when we stumble and fall and have to weep at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, I've fallen, and he is there to embrace us in his arms of love. And this notion of instantaneous sanctification comes from a misunderstanding of what happens at conversion. Look, when you are converted, when I am converted, we do not receive an ontological change. An ontological change means that we do not receive an installment of a new nature, meaning that we get a lobotomy, a transplant. The sinful nature is removed, and a sinless nature is installed. That is not what happens at conversion. Then you're like, Pastor David, what happens at conversion? What happens at conversion is that God frees your will to the sinful nature. He strengthens it. So that, according to Romans chapter 8, you can walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. But the thing is, the flesh is still there. And when someone is baptized, guess what? You have all of those old neural pathways that are still there. Now, you're justified. You are declared righteous. But in your walk with Jesus Christ, he goes through a process of rewiring those neural pathways. Now, when we talk about neuroplasticity and this notion of neural pathways, brain experts have come to the conclusion that when we do something over and over and over again, there is actually a physiological change in our neurons. They call them boutons. So when you do something repeatedly over and over again, there is actually a physiological change to the end of the dendrites so that those neurons fire more easily. And before long, you know how it is. You walk on a path, 
The path starts to get more worn. The path gets wider. And before long, you have a freeway. Now, this is actually a good thing. If we did not have this, can you imagine every time you get in the car, man, how do I do this again? Every time you sit down to type a letter, how do I do this? I, it, it would be awful. You, you got to relearn to tie your shoe every single day. This is actually a gift, but it's a catch-22 because it not only has to do with good habits, it has to do with bad habits. And friends, when we're baptized, guess what? All of those neurons, all of those dendrites still have those boutons on the end of them of your good habits and bad habits. Now, this is a quotation from a psychologist he said, brain scientists have discovered that any thought or action that is often repeated is actually building these areas, these little boutons, on the ends of certain nerve fibers that it becomes easier to repeat the same thought or action each time. Established habits make literal pathways. Frequent repetition of the same thought, failing or action wearing a deeper groove, I need new glasses, just as repeated walking over a lawn will wear a deeper path on the sod. This is the reality that after we have been justified, God brings us through a process of rewiring. But guess what? There is a lot of stumbling that takes place as you're trying to build these new neural pathways. As you're learning how to walk, there's some stumbling. Not because God is not able, but because of the reality of how we are wired as human beings. Now, I remember the first time I was trying to learn how to drive a stick shift car. I was canvassing in New England, in Vermont. My car broke down. The person's house that I was staying at graciously lent me their stick shift car. And I remember it was awful. First gear, second gear, oh, let go of the clutch too much. And I remember white knuckles sitting at a traffic light on an incline. I'm taking deep breaths. The light turns green. I let go of the clutch, but too far past the friction point, and the car stalls. I try it again. The car stalls again. The light changes from, red, uh, from green to yellow to red and I'm at the front of the line. And then you have this huge line behind me of irate New Englanders. Finally, the light changes again. I pop the clutch, squeal out of there, and it was just a lot of stalling. It was horrible. I remember going up this hill with my leader, and I'm trying to go up this hill in fifth gear. He said, fourth gear, I shifted, fourth gear. He said, third gear, third gear, second gear. I shifted to second gear. I did it too late, and I said, first gear. So I'm going up this hill in first gear. <laughs> but I kept trying. And today, watch out. <laughs> I'm not too shabby. I don't even have to think about it. Because those neural pathways... It's like a freeway now. And friends, as we're learning to walk with Jesus, 
there is grace for when we fall. Dr. Chalmers goes on, when you fall, the thing to do is get up. Get up. And start working on the new pathway again. You never lose ground. You never lose ground on that pathway. Those boutons are not erased by the occasional fall. Now, I think of a baby learning to walk. I never have seen a loving parent that is not excited as a child with those wobbly, pudgy feet are trying to take steps. You do not see a parent angry, condemning. You see a parent just like this parent is. As we're wobbling and learning how to walk, Jesus is there. His grace is there to cover us through these destabilizing moments. Steps of Christ says on page 64, we shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings, mistakes, but we are not to be discouraged. Even if we are overcome by the enemy, we are not cast off. We are not forsaken by the enemy. Now remember in the beginning we said justification is like getting married. Sanctification is like staying married. How many of you are married to a perfect spouse? Now watch out. Watch out. All right, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. The thing is, in order to stay married, there's a whole lot of grace that needs to go around. Amen? <laughs> there's a whole lot of grace. And the thing is, just because you make a mistake in a marriage does not equate divorce. There's a fundamental difference between the two. Just because of our faults and foibles in our marriage does not equate a total break in the relationship. Now, I'm not saying that in our relationship with God that we don't ask forgiveness. But we need to recognize that in our posture with God, as we are struggling, as we are trying to learn how to walk, His grace covers us through this journey. His grace is there to sustain us. Our characters are not set times and occasions, but by the Spirit, and notice this word, the trend of the whole life. It's not about the incidentals. It's about the trend. How are you falling? Are you falling forward? The character is revealed not by the occasional good deeds and the occasional misdeeds, but by the tendency of the habitual words and acts. It's the trajectory. You know, we get so caught up in these incidentals, you know, worrying about, hey, am I justified or not justified? Look, His grace is covering you. It's your trajectory. We need to think of the posture of a parent, and sometimes, friends, we bought into the propaganda of the devil believing that God is worse than earthly parents. I mean, we think that God is there, ready to just spank us the moment we stumble and wobble and are turning how to, learning how to walk. 
I mean, that's a lie. That's absolutely not true. Now, the thing is, what does Jesus look like when we make a colossal mistake? What is his countenance like? Because sometimes we have this vision of God that when we make a mistake, there is a lot of vindictiveness. Like a bolt of lightning is going to come out of the sky and zap us. And, and we, we have to feel like we're in this doghouse, beg our way back into the home to be accepted by the Father. Now, we can see a window into how God relates to us through this experience of Peter. You remember this. Peter, that night, he slips in to the outer court of the high priest. Jesus is being held there. It's after Gethsemane. He slips in. He's warming himself by the fire. Now, I want you to think about this. Peter, he's not an ordinary follower. He's one of the 12. He's not even one of the 12. He's one of the three. The inner circle of Jesus. Special relationship. He is there. And as he's warming himself by the fire, you know the story, they're looking at him, and in the glow of the fire, they look at him and they say, hey, you look like a Galilean. I mean, don't you, haven't you been around Jesus? And he said, no, 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 that's not me. Comes back again. Yes, I've seen you before. I've seen that face. He said, no, not me. Third time comes around, I am sure I have seen you. And by that time, he wants to make it clear that it's not him. Because the disciples were known for their purity of speech. And in an expletive laced tirade, he said, I do not know the man. As those words are fresh upon the lips of Peter. The Desire of Ages paints a powerful picture. While the degrading oaths were fresh upon Peter's lips and the shrill crowing of the cock was still ringing in his ears, the Savior turned from the frowning judges and looked upon the poor disciple. Powerful moment. I mean, you could cut it with a knife expletive tirade, I do not know the man, the cock crows, then Jesus turns directly at Peter. And what did his face look like? I'll tell you what my face would have looked like if I was Jesus. Parents, you given that look before? To your son or daughter? What did his face look like? Now, I want you to think about this. This is ultimate denial. You can't get any lower than this for Peter. Public denial. Expletive laced. Frankly, whatever look Jesus gave him, if it was negative, it could be argued he deserved it. But look at this. Jesus turns and the desire of ages paints this picture. At that same time, Peter's eyes were drawn to the master. They locked eyes. In the gentle countenance, he read pity and sorrow, but there was no anger there. Let me read that again. 
In the gentle countenance, he read deep pity and sorrow, but there was no anger there. I mean, what a moment. Supreme denial. Supreme just expletive lace denial in a public arena and in that moment Jesus turns to him and in his face is sorrow but absolutely no hint even in the look of his face of a vindictive condemning nature. And friends, this is exactly the same way that God looks at us when we fall. Exactly. Don't let the propaganda get to you. This is the reality. There is no penance, no purgatory, no having to grovel our way back to God. Now Jesus gave this look even before Peter had asked for forgiveness. I mean, look at the posture of God. Reading on, the sight of that pale, suffering face, the face of Jesus, those quivering lips that took that look of compassion and forgiveness pierced his, Peter's heart like an arrow. That's what it does to us. (laughs) When we get grace, when we get something that we don't deserve, It compels us, breaks us to say, Lord, (laughs) I surrender. Steps of Christ, page 64, we shall often have to weep, bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes, but we are not to be discouraged. Even if we are overcome by the enemy, we are not cast off, not forsaken, and rejected of God. Praise God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, oh Lord, we thank you for grace. Unmerited, undeserved. Lord, we are so undeserving of your care and watch over us. When we fall, when we stumble, even like Peter, when we deny you, there is not a hint of condemnation. Lord, help us to believe that you are who you say you are. May this vision of Jesus frame our Christian experience. And Lord, I'm wondering if there's someone here today that wants to say, Father, (laughs) I've been affected by a false view of you. But today, help me to see a new vision of Jesus. If that's your desire, I want to invite you to raise your hands today. Say, Lord, give me this vision of Jesus. Father, you see these hands. I pray that you'd bless them. Cover them with your robe. Cleanse them by your spirit. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.